Have you heard the birds sing, the trees breathe, and the rain fall? The stories we tell ourselves are what create our reality. Hi, I'm Julia, your host, and you're listening to Terra Stories, the podcast that will awaken your mind to new perspectives, to reconnect to yourself, to nature, and to become an actor of change in tomorrow's world. Ashley is a storyteller. She first started by searching for fossils at her grandmother's house and saving the trees in her garden. She traveled to the Caribbean, saw the rainforest, and was blown away by the fact that the local people ate termites because of their amount of protein and how the termites lived with the tree species. Growing up, Ashley wanted to study biology and become an artist. Although specializations like those in the United States diverged, she couldn't stop doing both. As a result, she decided to study anthropology, nestling her in a perfect way. It's aligned with the way she saw things already coexisting and having these connections that were siloed in other forms of study. However, During all this time, she met a lot of people who had intuitive wisdom about themselves and the natural world, who had incredible things to say and who inspired her. That's how she finally found herself, looking at stories, thinking she could reach people, support them and tell their stories. She wanted to create an environment in which we were more self-reflective and where we could listen. And above all, she needed reciprocity. How did she get there? Who did she meet on her way? How and why was storytelling the solution? What did she learn about scientific communications? Ashley, Director of Storytelling and Marketing for Communications and Partnerships at the Jane Goodall Institute in the US, will take you on her journey to cultivate reciprocity through hopeful storytelling. So hi, Ashley. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm very happy to share that moment with you. Thank you for having me. I love any opportunity to get to talk about the creative side of conservation and working with people everywhere to get inspired to do something in their own lives or for the larger world and, and ecosystems everywhere. Firstly, I would ask you a small introduction of yourself. Absolutely. So my name is Ashley Sullivan, and I am the Director of Storytelling and Marketing for the Communications and Partnerships team at the Jane Goodall Institute. And that is a very large mouthful of a title. I am originally from Brooklyn, New York, and I live now in Washington, D.C., 
I've been at the organization for seven years, and I actually moved down to D.C. for this job. And I was 26 at the time, which is the same age that Jane Goodall was when she entered the forest of Gombe, Tanzania to study wild chimpanzees, if you are all familiar with that grand tale. And she is often confused with other what are called trimates. So there were three young women who studied great apes. There was Diane Fossey who studied gorillas, Jane Goodall who studied chimpanzees, and Barute who studied orangutans. So Jane is the chimpanzee lady, as people often refer to her, but she has been both following through on this longitudinal research of wild chimpanzees, which is the longest running study on chimpanzees in the world for almost 60 years, but or over 60 years. But she also does a ton of international conservation work, uh, advocacy work, humanitarian work. So my role specifically has a lot to do with all things digital engagement, as they say. But I really like the aspect of my work that is storytelling, which essentially to me means that everything that we do throughout our lives, any channel, I would say, so whether you're talking to someone face to face, whether you are corresponding with them over Instagram DMs, whatever portal you are using stories and relaying information about yourself and the world around you through stories. And that's a lot of what we do at JGI. Jane herself is sort of a prolific storyteller. I would say that she sees herself as a storyteller more than a scientist in some ways. I think to that end, what it really means is that she feels compelled to do something to improve the lives of people, other animals in the environment. And she feels that everyone can do something for themselves and for others in this world and that we're all interconnected. And the way to compel people to action is through stories. And so when we're sharing those stories, as well as amplifying the stories of our audiences, we're really creating this circularity of connection and relationships Uh, And that's what we do in all sorts of digital spaces. And then in my spare time, since I've already (laughs) gone on a tangent here, um, I also sort of an artist. I do classical sort of oil painting, but all sorts of forms of art, sculpture. I did muraling for a while. I also play ukulele and other string instruments. And I really enjoy running around the world, exploring places as much as I can and finding out more about local cultures and architecture and landscapes and ecosystems. It's funny because we already had a conversation together and I didn't know about you painting, playing ukulele, but that's what I really imagined about you, this link between science conservation and also arts. And I think your work also fits into that. Storytelling is an art form for the conservation industry. So how did you become interested in the world of conservation and communication? Yes. How did it happen? Um, How did all of this happen? So actually right now I'm in a graduate program at Johns Hopkins for environmental science and policy. And as part of that, I'm taking a bunch of core classes that are really sort of fundamental to environmental science. So things like geology, ecology, and it reminded me of all the reasons that I had that early, really fascination and interest in the world around me. And I think that 
it, it has been bringing me back because I think at my core, like you were saying, I never really saw lines between science and art. I, I feel like art is observation as much as science is observation. Obviously, science has a peer review process and there is an analytical and data collection component. But I think ultimately, it really is about this sort of immersion and observation and a way in which we can provide that insight and our in our specific viewpoint, like the place in the world that we stand that view and that lens to other people. So when I was younger, growing up in Brooklyn, New York, I have told this story before, which seems kind of mundane, but I would go to my grandmother's house and it was a very standard sort of all homes that were attached and a cement backyard that was just kind of a parking lot for the residents there. And so playing in the backyard, I would pretend to be an archaeologist and have just like a decrepit toothbrush and (laughs) brush away cement thinking that I would find all sorts of creatures and fossils. And my mother and I and my brother would put little droplets of sugar water by my grandmother's front door and sort of watch the behavior of ants and how they communicated with one another and how they could, if one sort of tracked two that sugar, water, the others would know that it's there and how they would work together to try to get that sugar water back to their colony or their homes. And so I think that I was always just very interested and overjoyed when there was an opportunity for me to find something. And I think that growing up in an urban environment, I saw that there could not be lines between humans and other organisms that we were all sort of living (laughs) clumped together in this beautiful, you know, marriage of life and existence. So that I think is where it really started. I was, I was very lucky enough to be able to also sort of travel to the Caribbean at a young age and see things like rainforests in Belize, which even though that was at the point of secondary growth, because it had already been cut down at a certain point, I was just dazzled and completely transfixed by the idea that local people would eat termites, for example, because of the disproportionate amount of protein in a creature like that and how termites lived with you know, the tree species and strangler vines that you could see sort of the framing of because they had strangled out the tree within within it uh, as part of its existence in the rainforest. So I really wanted to study biology and that was a bit of what I wanted to do, but I also wanted to be an artist and these were sort of, it didn't feel necessarily entirely competing, but I think in our classic U.S. school system, there are definitely ways that specializations like that do diverge. So like I wanted to go to an arts high school and and that had its own arts program that you had to apply for. But at the same time, I wanted to take AP biology and that that wouldn't necessarily work together. So I could see that there was a tension, but I couldn't stop doing both. And I ended up going to Stony Brook University on Long Island, which has a very competitive pre-med program. And I was very turned off by biology, (laughs) taking classes with other students who were trying to enter pre-med. And instead, I turned to anthropology. And I think anthropology kind of nestled me in a perfect way because it has all of these overlapping ways of 
understanding the world around us through the perspective of human evolution and existence and culture. And I think that that felt very natural for me. And it, it aligned very easily with the way that I saw things already coexisting and having these connections that I think were siloed in other forms of study. So I think I, yeah, I just, I just had a lot of, (laughs) I had time to be imaginative as a young person and watch a lot of ants is I guess the, (laughs) the short version of that. It really reminds me of braiding sweet grass from Robin Wall Kimmerer. Um, In science, we're missing a little bit of wisdom, spirituality and art form. I really think that storytelling is the perfect blend of science and art because of the scientific mechanisms of stories, the impact they have on our brains. And in the same way, it's a way to express experiences and ourselves. So was storytelling a way for you to combine both? I think so. Yeah, I think that when I was graduating college, I think a lot of people, I was actually just talking to a class Uh, John Tribus works at Georgetown and does a lot of social impact storytelling. And he actually used to work with Jane in her direct department. And so he often will take his class. He has a class on Jane at Georgetown for a lot of graduating seniors and, and he brought them over. And so we were having this conversation about how do we navigate doing things that we are good at or passionate about while also doing something for the world around us. And I think, so I got to senior year and I think everyone around me was sort of, you know, a flutter and a, a bit of a mess trying to think about what would happen after college. And I I didn't have strong mentors. I had some professors who were sort of trying to lead me into academia. I had studied abroad in Madagascar and I had a lot of scientists, colleagues who were in their PhD programs or had just graduated and earned their PhDs. So I understood what field research would look like, practically speaking. And there are so many extraordinary aspects to that work and being able to develop one-on-one relationships with the people and the ecosystems in which you're studying. But I also saw so many of the challenges. So I really looked to stories as the way that I figured I could reach people, I could support people in being able to tell their own stories, and I could create this environment in which we were more reflective, more self-reflective in telling our own stories and thinking about our own place in the world, but also listening to others. And so I wanted to either do communications, (laughs) obviously that is talking to people and telling stories, or filmmaking, which is visual storytelling. And I would say now more than ever, we're seeing this, especially in digital communications, those areas are converging all the time. There's really less of a separation than I think there was before social media recognized the power of visual storytelling. I mean, I think it always it always kind of had. Obviously, YouTube was like a big component of why social media became 
so interactive and why there's so many communities online. But that, that really is why I got to the point of storytelling is that I recognized that I was meeting all of these people, both in places like Madagascar or in the Caribbean or in Brooklyn, who had either an intuitive wisdom about themselves in the natural world or, or struggles they were facing with lack of access to natural resources or the environment or conservation struggles from the scientist perspective or understanding endangered species. And all these people had incredible things to say and no conduit to get to a larger platform of influence. And that's where I thought that I could really, really help with, uh, with storytelling. You wanted to communicate, but you also wanted to connect. You are talking about social media. These are very important because we can share important messages through them. But at the start, there was this oral storytelling and you studied anthropology. So I think you know how it's part of us and our story. What do you think about this? Do you think that stories are innately human? Yes, I think that the the short answer is absolutely yes. I think um, so one thing that is interesting about Jane Goodall is that one of her most famed observations uh, is that she observed chimpanzees making and using tools, which up until that point, it was believed that that behavior was exclusively human, that humans were known as tool makers. And that was a sign of our intelligence and our sentience and all of these things of a culture, all of this stuff. And Jane's observations, though I'm sure local people across the chimpanzee range had seen this behavior, they didn't necessarily had, have access to Western science publications. Jane Goodall had access to mentors like Dr. Lewis Leakey, the famed paleoanthropologist who is her mentor, Western science publications, Nat Geo, other local communities who might have observed tool use in chimpanzees and other great apes didn't, but had probably observed it up until that point. But that was what was considered a huge breakthrough in understanding our relationship with other animals and that there is not a sharp line uh, is sort of the quote around that. But I also think stories is, is something that sets us mildly apart from other animals. I think other animals may tell a version of stories to one another in forms of communication. We know that there is sophisticated communication happening in all sorts of very intelligent wildlife all over the world and different species. Um, we know crows are highly intelligent, obviously other great apes like humans, gorillas, orangutans. But humans tell stories, I think, in a very different way than other animals. And I think it is part of our human story to tell stories. It is part of the way in which we survived. You think about the vulnerability of being a human. We are naked. <laughs> we have very limited fur or hair cover compared to other animals. We are out in exposed areas. You know, we transitioned from forested areas from our great ape ancestors to open savannas. We're bipedal. We have soft flesh. <laughs> We're not wearing armor unless we've created it. So to survive and be the kind of capable species that we've become across landscapes all over the world, you know, we don't necessarily have niche environments. We live all over. I think stories is part of the reason why we were successful because we were able to convey information that was not seen to one another. So about places that were not 
directly in front of us to other members of our community. We're also able to imagine things. So storytelling around myth and meaning and creating cultures where there's a level of looking forward to things. So if we're creating a myth around what happens in the afterlife, or, you know, as we've talked about in indigenous cultures, and Robin Kimmerer of Braiding Sweetgrass talks about sort of origin stories in North America for indigenous peoples, thinking about the stories that ground us in a relationship with the natural world and reasons why we should be creating reciprocity with ecosystems are a way for us to survive, right? If we acted upon our basic instincts to just eat as much as we can because we don't know if we're going to eat again in the future, that means that we would expire all of our crops you know, through the cold season. But if you have a story about the anthropomorphizing or sort of giving character and humanity to plants, then you have a greater sense of respect for that plant or that ecosystem where you are not going to necessarily just rip up all the crops and eat them right away. So stories were really tantamount to our survival as sort of a vulnerable (laughs) species. And also, I think that like you were saying, it connects us more to a level of spirituality. We're not seeing anything as just a rock or just soil or just the wind. We are seeing things as having energetic power connected to our own and that we are a part of a larger world. And that is the way that stories function, both in a practical sense, so that we're not destroying our ecosystems immediately, though obviously right now I think there's been a disruption of that understanding of representation reciprocity, which I think Kimmerer talks so eloquently about. But I I think it's also a a level of connecting ourselves back to what is a a, a true scientific known is that we are all energetic beings. There There is no way that we're not connected to one another on what we call maybe a spiritual level, but it is essentially just an emphasis that we're all energetically connected and that our dynamic relationships either in on an ecological level or on you know any sort of subatomic level even we are connected it's very interesting and i think we've forgotten that everything we tell ourselves is based on myths and stories and that's how we're built But it's dangerous in a way because we're using narrative in a way that makes us lose track and its primary purpose of making us connect to life. And now the question we ask ourselves is, are we connected to nature? Are we nature? Do you think that we've lost our track? You are talking about indigenous communities. Do you think that we should be inspired by their way of telling stories and by their stories? Yeah, I mean, I think that indigenous communities, both historically and as they exist today, obviously deal with the legacy of colonialism that part of the insidious power of white supremacy and colonialism was a direct emphasis on using a misinterpreted lens of science to remove the relationship that indigenous people had with their land and with their identities and with their culture, cultural sensibilities and, and myths. And, and I think that that demonstrates how important those relationships are and how important storytelling is to human survival, as I was saying, both in our 
ability to feel a sense of purpose, a sense of connection, mental health and well-being, but also to sustain ourselves on a planet with limited um, resources. So I think that I still feel sort of this embrace of science and Western science largely in the way that we, I think, actually are becoming more aware of the simplicity and elegance of relationships that many cultures had with the natural world through, you know, this very long and meandering process of Western scientific history. For example, you know, I'm in an atmospheric sciences class in my grad program, And scientists are talking about climate feedback loops that essentially the idea is that there are systems in which if the balance of that system changes or collapse permanently, then other systems upon which rely on that main system would also change and collapse, thereby shifting our climate, you know, indefinitely, essentially, from anthropomorphic climate change. So we're talking about these feedback loops. So one list of feedback loops includes something known as dust effect. So if you think about it, and you think about the motion of wind around the world, any area that has exposed landscapes of dust, that dust is going to blow with the wind to other places. And in some cases, the blowing of dust has been happening for 1000s of years in an actually sustained and beneficial way. So dust from the Sahara, for example, has been blowing across the Atlantic Ocean and Caribbean and is a vital part of nutrient supply for vegetation. So obviously with climate change, a lot of that is changing and things are out of balance, but science is now recognizing that that feedback loop is and has to be connected to other feedback loops like, you know, the increasing desertification of the Sahara or the shift of that over time and increasing or decreasing supply of that dust cloud. So even though science is putting that in so many words and is using sophisticated modeling to emphasize the fact that not only if we do one harm in one place, we're doing harm on a global scale for various human, wildlife, you know, ecosystems, so on and so forth, but that the simplicity and elegance of the reciprocity shared in other cultures from, you know, early history to now that has been silenced through colonization and this emphasis on productivity is actually true. There's there's the inherent wisdom that what we do to our direct environment has a cascade effect in other places. And I think those early stories were saying that in a more human way than it took science, you know, centuries <laughs> to finally come to that same conclusion. I will say that I love the fact that science is finally integrating traditional ecological knowledge into these practices because we can actually use technology to help us all visualize and solve for things that are so complicated now because of the place that we got to that we wouldn't necessarily be able to get to those solutions alone. So I I really think they have to work together. But I do think that there, there have been things lost, particularly in the way Western science has been weaponized in the past. And I am hopeful that the recognition of traditional ecological knowledge is going to really help us, to your point, feel that sense of connection that is lost from, I think, siloed scientific practices. Yeah, I think it's reconnecting to our emotions, our nature, to science. 
And talking about hope and, of course, your work in the Jane Goodall Institute, you told me that hope was linked to science communication. What do you think of hope in communication? Why do you think it's important? Yes, I do. I think that Jane has really been talking about this for decades. So I have to give all credit to Jane. And I think that because she has a really strong ability to see the intertwinedness of things, she has always recognized that if you are going to either overcomplicate something, right, if we just share something that is either in jargon or language that we don't necessarily on the, a larger society level have access to, so sort of the insular language that some in academia and science use, you're going to turn people off. Uh, that's just, you know, part of it, both because people will not understand what you're saying, but they'll also feel sort of intimidated by what you're saying. So I think she recognized both the need to not use jargon, but also the need to have people not sort of sit in dread <laughs> and this idea that we are helpless. And I think that this sense of agency is something that I'm really interested in. And when I worked for an organization that focused on filmmaking and young people's ability to write their own stories, this sense of agency, and also in our Roots and Shoots youth program um, that we work on with now, this sense of agency, the sense that you have control and ownership of your own life and your own decisions and your own outcomes, I think has to be related to this idea of hope. And I, I'm very in awe of Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson. <laughs> I'm already jumping the gun. I'm so excited to talk about her. I respect her so much. And I love the perspective that she gives about hope, which is that hope as a throwaway term is really destructive. So the idea that people say, I, I hope things go well, you know, thumbs up, that is what placates people away from having that sense of activation. But hope in the way that Jane defines it is an active term. And so when you want people to feel connected to science, and ultimately, again, science is just tested observation that gives us greater clarity about something in the world, a system, a modality, a species, whatever it is. If you want people to care about that, it's not necessarily that they might not know something or that they might not understand something. It's that you have to turn that concept into something that is values-based. So if someone wants to do something about it, it's because it connects to something that they prioritize and value. And hope is how you convert people. So if people believe that, for example, whether or not they believe climate change is human-driven, which we know it is, is sort of next to the point of how they prioritize that. So what in their life do they value? Is it their children's you know, well-being on this planet 50 years from now? If that's the case, then what gives them hope enough to do something to ensure that future for their children? And the thing that Jane does so well is give examples using stories that 
make people feel that they can accomplish something, even if in, if in their lives and their personal lives, they don't feel connected to climate change. Every, as we were talking about, every sort of consumer demand choice, every policy choice, the way we vote, every way we communicate with our networks and, and galvanize people to participate in our communities, those are all ways to plug in. And by giving those hopeful examples and tying it to people's values, you can move people. Like that is, we were also talking about the creation of movements, stories, and the idea that things can be accomplished even if they're difficult or complicated is how movements are born and grow. And so I think that that's a lot of at the core of the way we do our work and the way that I see storytelling is in this emphasis on meeting people where they are and giving them a sense that they have control in their own story and that their stories are connected to a hopeful future that involves the stories of everyone. I read Jane's book, The Book of Hope, and what you said really sums up what she wrote. It's very simple. It speaks to everyone and gives a lot of hope. What do you think would happen if everyone told positive stories like she does? Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting thought. I think something that I'm really passionate about is equity. And I think that You know, we're seeing this luckily more and more in COP meetings about climate and legislation in the U.S., in the Inflation Reduction Act and, and other policies that we recognize that not there's a level of privilege that exists in the world across race, class, gender and various identities. And, and it's hard both to it's not just hard, it's sort of impossible in some ways to have everyone plug into a level of hopefulness when there are active barriers and inequities in the world that are disproportionately affecting, especially in the U.S., people of color and low-income communities. So I think that it would look like a combination of telling and listening, active listening. And so I think that positive stories, like if everyone told hopeful stories, I think that it would be It doesn't necessarily, again, to speak to Dr. Anne Elizabeth Johnson, it doesn't have to be positive in a unrealistic way. I think that there are people who deal with tremendous hardship and they can tell a story about what they want their future to look like, what it would look like if people in Flint, Michigan had clean water and access to controlling their clean water supply on a consistent basis and that there wasn't this pre-existing systemic inequality. And that, I think for some people that might seem like a difficult story, but it is a hopeful story. And on the other side, what it would look like for other people to, of other identities to listen to that story and feel hopeful about what can be done to make things right and to make sure that we have a shared vision of a future where we each have access to environmental resources and benefits. I think that's, that's what I hope it would look like is that it would be less of a one way conversation and more of a true conversation in that we have to, we have to hope for a vision together, but what that looks like has to come from all of these different experiences and needs and barriers and voices. So it can't just be, me as a white woman saying, 
uh, here's a here's a good story and here's how I hope things will go. It has to come from everyone to create a shared vision. And I think we also talked about that. That is the power of stories is that my story can both inspire other stories, but also give people the skill set to listen more actively and create a shared story together. I saw a post on Instagram that said that if you have climate anxiety, do this. And what we often hear, and I think it's really good advice, is to take action first, to do something. And this post said to listen or tell a story about hope. I thought that was amazing advice because the stories we listen to are often negative. We open our phones and we see the destruction of nature. Do you think these positive stories can help us collectively heal? Yeah, I think so. And it's funny because it is such a, it's from the, it's from the individual level. It's from a psychological level. It's from a cultural level. And then that emanates out to broader systems and ideas and societal malfunctions. So I think, I think a lot about how people talk a lot about catastrophic thinking. So the idea that if you have anxiety, you might participate in worst case scenarios, right? That's the first place you go as an individual. And I think that when so many of us deal with individual anxiety, you know, we were also just talking about the addiction to work and productivity culture. We have personal anxiety. We, you know, reinforce anxiety with the people around us in our communities. We seek it out. And I'm not talking about necessarily clinical anxiety. And that is not my my forte, though my fiance is a psychologist. <laughs> But I I think the point is when there's a level that you can control of preventing worst case scenario thinking, to your point, what if things went well? What does that look like? What is that story? both in your own life, but also for the world. And so I think completely what you're saying, if more of us, if the first thing we thought, if more of us thought, what if things go well, what would that look like? You know, not being unrealistic or fantastical, we don't want people to ignore the true barriers and challenges of their lives and this life. But what if things went well? Just just exercise that. And I think To your point, so much more could get done if we leaned on that versus cat catastrophe in all ways. As we are talking about stories, do you have a story that inspires you that you would like to share? A lot. I mean, I think ultimately what makes me feel good every day. And certainly it's a struggle. I want anyone listening to understand that each day I wake up with a level of <laughs> dread as well as excitement. And I think we all balance that and, and have various reasons for that in our own lives and scales of that. But I truly feel like the people that I have met and know of that are contributing in such meaningful ways to activism And they have such a compelling way in which they voice their thoughts and insights. And there are so many people that I could talk to pretty endlessly that I've met, luckily, in, in very serendipitous ways. I, I think that those people are are really what motivate me. And when I was in Ecuador for a very 
interesting effort to try to make a documentary about the Chaco rainforest, I met a researcher biologist named Raul who had set up a protected area in the Chaco and his mission was really to make people understand that it was a highly biodiverse area. It's in northwestern Ecuador into Colombia uh, and most people weren't paying attention to it because they were fixated on the media stories about the Ecuadorian Amazon and that so often happens with all sorts of things. There's you know, we call the iconic species that get more attention than other discrete species, even though, you know, they all have innate value and importance. But anyway, in Ecuador, working with Raul and other folks on this documentary, and ultimately what we found when we were interviewing people around the areas that we were in the Chaco is that even though everyone had a different perspective on how to accomplish conservation, some felt that what they could do was to buy up some land, buy up as much land as possible and physically protect it. Other people felt that they could work with young people and make them connected to the natural world and have this sense that they wanted to build reciprocity with the Chico and the areas in which they grew up. And other people felt that they needed to go rogue and work against larger, powerful entities to try and undermine those entities. And some people felt that they could create sustainable cacao farms and sell chocolate and get people interested in their chocolate enough to care about the ecosystems of the Chico. And even though these were all disparate approaches, there was this shared understanding that something urgent was happening that needed collective action. And it was in our just little trip there talking to all these people that they were able to get better connected to one another. And I, I do think that we still work kind of independently and, and there is a level of redundancy as well as limitations because we're not listening to one another and we're not seeking out people who might already be in an industry or a field or collaborating enough or building true community in our local areas or even across areas if you have a like-minded or a, a similar cause. So I think that that is something that I think often about that gives me hope and inspires me to keep going is that you will find people who are doing incredible things, and Jane often talks about this too, that in every corner, uh, I say corner, but obviously the world is, is round. And in all areas of this, this round planet, there are people who care probably as much as you do and are doing things or might have the expertise or the tools or the skills or the funding that you might not have had access to or even knew or possible. And I, and I have seen such extraordinary things happen when people reach out and recognize those parallels. How do you get closer to nature? What advice can you give? I think that it, I wish that I did more, <laughs> I think, with natural spaces. And I, I do feel like what's hard about working in conservation sometimes is that we're so, we're working so hard on so many issues that were glued to our commuter screen. So 
I wish that, and for anyone that has time and access in their days, to, to really go into more na- what we call natural spaces or places that you feel connected to nature. But yeah, I mean, I grew up in Brooklyn. Like I said, I, I had a backyard that was cement. I <laughs> There was a tree in, in that, in my backyard, not my grandmother's, but my own backyard. And it was essentially also just a cement parking lot. So my parents really wanted to get rid of this tree. In, in a lot of cities, you'll know this, but trees are planted as part of urban planning to have sort of short roots and short lifespans because they can get into sewer systems and all of that. And actually the trees around our house, the roots would always get into our sewer system. And and this is kind of TMI, but it didn't go well in our basement because of the, the flooding from the sewer system. And so my mother was always really upset about about the trees, but I felt so attached. You know, I had this sense that they had a life force. They, they existed as I did and it, and I wasn't to say whether they could live or die. And I think obviously my mom felt that that was maybe true and, and very romantic, but she had this existence that was much harder than the one that I had to deal with because of the consequences of, of having trees around us. So I think that the point I guess I'm making is my parents ended up saving one of the trees and, and actually had a fence built in like a weird (laughs) formation so that it could, it could work around the tree in our backyard. And it, it might seem like a limited access to the natural world and it might seem limited to, to save one tree and and maybe that's impractical in some places especially when there's you know hardships that people like my mom have to deal with but i think that it, it is just anything that is alive that you can connect to that's that's connecting to nature and it could be other people it could be the tree in your backyard it could be growing some basil on your windowsill it's just connecting back to life and and the the life force that we depend on and, and we're a part of what I loved about what you were saying was keeping our inner child's eyes open. And I really identify with your story because we had a palm tree in front of our apartment and I could see it very close from the window. I was nine years old when we started living in that apartment. And a few years ago, there was this disease in Europe that was killing all the palm trees and sadly they had to cut the palm tree down and it was horrible for me I it was like losing a friend losing my neighbor for all those years I used to talk to it sometimes also so yeah it was very sad for me and I think we should see things the way we saw them when we were a child yeah oh but yeah it is, it is such a dramatic feeling and and to your point you you allow, I think we allow ourselves more true intensity of feelings when we're children. And part of that is connecting to the world around us. I think we have this ability when we're kids to, yeah, see kinship with other beings everywhere around us. You know, when we're kids, we want to be friends and family with everyone and everything. And I think that we, yeah, to your point, we, we sort of continue to remove that sensibility as we get older. And I think that that's actually the root of a lot of issues. I think that that's at the core of racism and prejudice. It's this idea that we create these boundaries around ourselves of of othering. And that goes to other species 
and other cultures and other people and other identities. And I think to your point, if we created more of a world where we saw through our childhood eyes, I think there would be a greater level of grace and humanity and empathy. But yeah, I hope people can just take a pause wherever and just, yeah, be kind of interested in the world around you. I remember one time we took a Roots and Shoots group in Maryland around and we walked past some magnolia trees. We are in the south of the U.S. here technically. And I mentioned the magnolia tree. I asked if they knew anything about it and they hadn't even really thought about it. They were like, I don't know, it's a tree. And I told them that it was one of the most ancient tree species and that it's believed that the blooms, the big sort of bulbous blooms, co-evolved with beetles and they just couldn't, they just, none of that was something that they'd even thought about or considered. The idea that, you know, this was such an ancient species that had been around thousands of years, the idea that insects were co-responsible for the fact that these kinds of flowers existed. So I think it's really important to just take like you were saying, sort of a minute to look around you and maybe ask some questions. Now, my favorite question, what kind of ancestor would you like to be? I think that recently I've done a lot of learning and I think initially I had this sense of grandeur that I wanted to be able to tell stories at the scale that would influence a massive societal revelation that we all have a responsibility to one another and a necessity of coexistence with the natural world and that we could live in this in this way and that that would be this sort of awakening that everyone learned from and I don't know what that <laughs> grandeur looked like but I think that's the footprint that I that I wanted to leave And I think it served me well for a point because I think it was very aspirational. And I think part of me still sees that, you know, level of change as something that I'm going to like keep running toward. But I think recently my learnings have been more of the interpersonal effects of the way that I am to myself and others every day. So I think that if I were remembered It's just as someone who was great to be around <laughs> and gave, gave people the feeling that they were worthy and deserving and capable. And I do think that whatever scale that ends up being at, you know, I, obviously I would love for it to be on that very uh, impressive and, and sort of globally influential scale But even if it's on the scale of everyone who I've been able to meet in a lifetime, I think that would be enough because I do think that the way that we fortify ourselves and each other with goodness does end up impacting other spaces and people. And so I, I and I think that it, it, to your point about what we can control and what we feel hopeful about, that's something I feel like I can accomplish in this lifetime is that I can be a decent person and respectful person to other people and also make them see themselves in the way I see them. So kind of just be a mirror of goodness as much as I can be. Thank you for this moment, Ashley. It was a pleasure to speak with you about storytelling, hope, and all those subjects that gave me a lot of inspiration. And bye to you. Thank you. <laughs> 
The podcast is coming to an end. Thank you so much for listening. You can find Terra Stories on Instagram at terrastories.studio and on LinkedIn. If you liked the episode, talk about it around you, share it with your friends. That's the thing that would give the biggest boost to the podcast. And don't hesitate to write me about the topics or personalities you'd like me to invite or address. I wish you a beautiful day or evening.